This is the Financial Freedom Series designed to show you how to cash flow your way to financial freedom. Brought to you by Lagos Financial. The road to financial freedom starts today. Welcome to the Financial Freedom Series. My name is Andrew Bean, and I'm here with top mortgage broker and financial expert, Victor Lagos from Lagos Financial. How are you, mate? Good, Andrew, mate. How are you? I'm fantastic, buddy. We have an absolute ripper of a show today. Really excited about this one. Are you as pumped as me? Yeah, this one's a tough one. Borrowing capacity. <laughs> Victor was just telling me before that I've got a few tough questions for him. So I'm putting him on the pump today to basically give the listener and everyone else the tools to be able to crack the lending code. And that's the real theme of this particular podcast is how can we give ourselves more borrowing capacity? So Victor's going to explain to us exactly how the bank's evaluate us as the borrower and then give us a few tips and tricks on how to make that a larger sum because at the end of the day property is just a game of finance with a few pieces of real estate thrown in there so if you can get more money more access to capital happy days keep on going yeah yeah exactly i think today you're really going to be getting all the secrets out of me all the stuff that i share with my (laughs) clients Uh, if you're listening yeah take some notes Awesome, mate. So this is a really, really big subject. So can you just give us a quick overview of how the banks actually make their assessment on borrowing capacity per applicant? Very simply put, they're just trying to work out that once you account for all of your expenses, so your living costs, as well as all of your debts, is there money left over to service your new loan? And is there a surplus after that? So that's overarching what they're trying to work it out. But then the numbers in which they calculate that differ. They don't look at what the actual cost is. They use buffers and stress tests. And we'll get into a little bit more of the details on that as you ask questions. Yeah, awesome. So, I mean, when I'm assessing a property, I have a metric that I put in for the debt coverage ratio because I believe that a bank or banks like to see like a good one and a half, two percent of a debt coverage ratio from the positively geared property. Do they have their own debt coverage ratio per applicant that they use? Yeah, so so when you're looking at lending serviceability calculators, every bank or lender has got their own methodology in what they account for. So if they're looking at a debt servicing ratio, it's usually between, say, 1.25 up to two times cover. And this is based on principal and interest on all of your loans on a higher interest rate than what you're actually paying. So say the rate is 6% and the bank has a 3% buffer on that, they'll calculate it at 9% and they'll want to see that you can actually cover that two times cover. Or not so much two times, that's pretty high, but I'd say you know 1.25 times that. Can you cover that with your income? So is the spread that the bank always puts on, is that a specific number or does that change bank to bank? Like the spread of the interest rate that they can actually give you to the the stress test that they put on you? So if you're a a bank and you're a deposit-taking institution, you're regulated by APRA. And APRA says you have to put 3% above the actual interest rate. So today's rates are around 6%. So they're calculating at, at 9%. But if you're a non-bank, then you don't report directly to APRA. You report to ASIC. 
and the stress test rates can vary. They can be sometimes 1% above that or 2% above that. So there's a bit more breathing room. And also the way they treat principal and interest repayments versus interest only is different as well. So right. a bank will always look at the principal and interest payment for the remaining P&I term. So say you've got a 30-year loan and you've got a five-year interest only. A bank's going to say, all right, well, there's 25 years remaining. So we need to calculate P&I or principal and interest mm. on 25 years. And we're going to stress test that at, a, say, 9%. So that's obviously a difficult feat because now you're, you've got a shorter loan term and mm. the repayments are higher. Whereas a non-bank can potentially look at the interest-only repayment and just say put 2% above that. That's a significant difference. That's a big difference. They're not looking at the principal and interest repayment. They're not looking at 25 years remaining. They're saying, what's the actual repayment today? And if it is interest-only, then let's just stress test that and see that you can afford that. And if you've got a few properties and they're all interest-only, that can work in your favor for a non-bank to borrow more. But if you're going to a bigger bank, overall, you're going to get a better interest rate, lower fees then it can hinder you by having a longer interest-only term. So can you just explain to us like what a non-bank is? Like maybe just name a couple of the businesses that are a non-bank because I mean, a lot of people would just think if they're lending me money, they're obviously a bank, but that doesn't seem to be the yeah. case. Yeah, they're just called non-banks or non-ADIs, non-deposit-taking institutions. So some of the more known lenders out there, Liberty Financial, Pepper Money, ResiMac, FirstMac. These are the ones that a lot of people know of, especially if you're a property investor. But then there's other non-banks or mortgage managers out there that many people may not have heard of. I'm even learning about new ones and I'm getting accredited yeah. with a lot of them. So, you know, a lot of them don't have any type of advertising or direct-to-consumer channels. So you can only get to them through the broker channel. And that's why sometimes it's really important to work with a broker that can actually navigate that and find the right lender because otherwise customer doesn't even know they exist they don't advertise and that might be the right lender to help you get the next property yeah right so with the three percent interest that the bank does put on or apra has put on for the bank has that always been three percent and is that enough for this particular time around where i think we're, are we on 12 or 13 rate hikes now is that is three percent enough back before <laughs> the interest rates we've probably already gobbled that up right now yeah, it's an interesting time that we're in. So the 3%, it used to be higher, I believe. It was 3.25 oh, okay. uh, a few years ago. But they dropped it down because interest rates were around 2% at one point or even lower for fixed. And the 3% buffer was accurate. And a lot of loans now have cracked over that. So there hasn't really been much distress, even for, for loans coming off of fixed into variable, because... People are paying what the banks are stress tested anyway, around that 5%. So now that we're cracking over to 6%, now it's starting to squeeze the household much more. And on top of that, you've got inflation. So the cost of, of living is going up as well. But because there was such a short a period of time where people were able to pay these low interest rates, they were then also able to build up cash buffers. So build up their offset account, their savings account, build up the loan redraw. A lot of people are living off of that stuff at the moment just to hold on to their property. Right now, if you're entering the market and the banks are assessing it at, say, 9%, I don't think 3% buffer makes sense with today's rates because if interest rates were at 9% today and where the prices are right now, 
there'll be very small amount of the market that will be able to borrow yeah. and, and own property anymore. <laughs> so, so I think it's actually going to drop. You know, some banks have got special rulings. A lot of them have got it because of this mortgage cliff, they're calling it, where people are coming off of these 2% fixed rates and they're calling it a mortgage prison because they're stuck with the same bank that they're with. And they've given them this ruling where they can, instead of assessing 3% above the actual interest rate, they're assessing at 1% above. So then as long as you've got clean credit, the loan to value ratio is, I think, below 80% and you put a 1% stress test buffer on top, then there's an option for these people to refinance to a lower interest rate potentially than that same bank is offering. So I guess that means that the banks aren't assuming or they're betting that there aren't going to be too many more interest rate hikes where they're going to easily take up that 1% buffer. Exactly right. They're kind of aware that we're at that higher range right now. And I've noticed as well that the gap between owner-occupied interest rates and investment rates is closing. So it's not Mm. as large as it used to be. So what that means is that the banks are likely eating into their margins, their profit margins, just to keep the interest rates at a somewhat affordable level. If they were really trying to maintain the same margins that they've had, then customers will be paying probably 7% right now. They're sort of keeping it at a relatively affordable level so that they can still get business. So if the rates were jumping up to 8%, 9% and no one can borrow, well, that's the entire economy gone, right? No one's able to buy and borrow anymore and banks aren't making profit at all. So they're better off having a lower margin, but still getting a lot of customers than high margins and no customers. Yeah, definitely. So I guess because the interest rate or the cash rate has been so low for so long, they've had such a good run of making money, getting more loans, putting out debt, that they really don't need to be having that really big spread of the best times, you know, profitability. They can they can dial it back because obviously they still want to have loans coming in, business coming in to keep the economy and everything going. Exactly right. And they've invested a lot of money into lending. So they've got a lot of new bankers and credit assessors and technology. They're shutting down branches so that more people are going online to apply for loans. So they need to get a return on investment on this. Mm. Uh, And they need to cut, you know, if they're increasing rates so high that no one can borrow, well, they're going to have to start getting rid of a lot of jobs and start downsizing. So it's an interesting time that we're in right now. Yeah, 100%. So can you explain to me what shading is for the the listeners that don't know what banks do or they don't know what shading is? Yeah, so shading is when, say you're collecting rent of $1,000 a week, they'll usually shade that by 10 to 20%. So instead of using $1,000 a week towards serviceability, they'll use $800 or $900. And they do this because properties, for example, aren't going to be rented out every week of the year. There might be a week or two where it's vacant or longer, depending when tenants leave and whatnot. They're also aware that there's going to be some costs that come up that they were unaware of. So things is going to be maintenance or repairs and things like that. So if they accept 100%, then they're putting themselves at risk that you can't afford the loan. So they shade it to make sure that they're being more conservative. And it's not just rental income. That's one thing that they shade. It's also certain types of income, such as overtime or bonuses or commissions. Same sort of thing, right? You might get really good bonuses this year and last year, but the year after it drops. So by them shading it by 20%, it gives them comfort knowing that if it does drop, that they were conservative in obviously the amount that they used towards uh, servicing the debt that they gave you. 
And is that 20%, is that a standard thing across all banks and all non-banks? Or do they have their own percentages they use for their own particular business? They all have their own. They call them niches. In in the lending world, they all have their own niches. And some of them will use 100% of overtime for certain industries, like essential workers, for example. You know, if you're a doctor or you're a nurse or ambulance, something like that, and you work a lot of overtime, well, that can boost up your income significantly. But if you go to one bank and they shade it by 80% or 20% and only use 80%, that's limiting how much you can borrow. So there might be a lender or a bank that will accept 100% of the overtime because they're aware that this industry, it's very common to work overtime. Um, mm. So they, they're happily taking on the risk because they know it's more likely going to continue that you're going to do those sort of hours. When it comes to property, because we've had a lot of low vacancy in terms of rent, you know, as we're aware, the population's growing, migration's increasing. There's a lot of people that are in a position where they're obviously having to pay more rent to stay where they're at in their current place. And people are paying more and more rent just to get a, a place to live. So that's kept vacancy rates very, very low. So banks have started trying to find more ways to get more borrowing. So instead of shading 20%, now they're only shading 10%. So they're accepting 90% of the rental income. It's always an ever-changing environment. There's new policies coming out all the time. And they always send us brokers the the changes. And sometimes it's hard to stay on, on top of, but that's what I have to do for a living. And I do that to help my customers. Yeah, it's really interesting how like the the changing of the assessment can change on any time. And I guess that's why you have your finger on the pulse and it makes sense to use someone like you who is always getting updates. Like how do you know when a bank has changed their shading policy? Like how do you know? Usually they send an email out with policy changes, but emails can get missed. You know, you can imagine how many lenders and banks are out there and how many policy changes, especially with RBA hikes and whatnot. Sometimes they get missed. So every bank or lender has got a relationship management team or a business development manager, and it's their job to explain these changes to brokers. So they all get a portfolio of brokers and they contact us and they tell us about the changes and they tell us their new niches or special offers that they have. Sometimes they call them like under the table offers as well. So they're Mm. not advertised because lenders are aware that the competition is fierce. So if they advertise certain things and other lenders become aware of it, customers can leverage that and go back to the other bank and offer the same product or the same interest rate or the same niche. So a lot of it is under the table. So they tell us that this is something we can do. And then we then have to communicate that to the right customer. Yeah, right. Very, very interesting. Yeah, it's an ever-changing climate. And I guess it just, you need someone with a finger on the pulse because like if say there's a bank and they have a shading of like 20% and they're also giving me a a 3% buffer or if it's a 2% buffer, it really does change the amount of borrowings that I could potentially get. Like it can be drastic. Has there been any like, like ridiculous amounts of money where you've taken it to one bank and they've given you X and then you've taken it to other bank and it's been like 10 times more? Have you had that with your clients yet? I wouldn't say 10 times more. We're talking a few hundred thousand, right? That's still a lot. Usually, that's, that's difference. Oh, definitely. It's a big difference. And a lot of customers are unaware of this, so they go directly to the bank. And that bank doesn't know other banks' policies. Mm. So they can't even tell you what another lender will offer because they don't have access to it. Plus, it's for them, they're kind of selling themselves short. And a lot of times, they don't want you going to the broker because they get an incentive, bonuses and whatnot. So if you work with a broker, even then, 
that broker might not be aware of all the different policies because we're creatures of comfort. We try to stick to what we know. And unless you're constantly getting out of your comfort zone and questioning things, you end up sticking with one or two banks. And most mm. brokers do the same thing. They stick to one or two and they become really, really proficient at offering those products. They become very familiar with it. So mm. it's very easy for a customer to say, oh, this broker knows what he's talking about. This must be the best bank for me because they know it like the back of their hand. But that bank may not be giving them the highest borrowing capacity. So if you're yeah. an investor and you're growing your portfolio, you need to be looking outside of the norm and exploring that. And that's what I do. I try to find different solutions. It's a game of finance. Like you said, property is a game of finance. And we're looking for solutions first. You know, interest rates and fees are important. But if you're going to pay a higher interest rate, but you can borrow an extra three, four hundred grand and it's going to get you a better property. Well, What's the cost versus the gain, right? Or yeah. The, so that's the things you got to consider. Obviously, if you're just a typical person just wanting to buy your first time or you're just refinancing for a better interest rate, it's all about costs. It's not really about different type of, but your listeners, our listeners are investors. So they're looking for solutions. 100%. It's no secret that getting finance for a commercial property can be a difficult task. If you're looking for a rockstar mortgage broker to kickstart your financial freedom, well, look no further. My man, Victor Lagos from Lagos Financial has you covered for all of your commercial financing needs. Go to lagosfinancial.com.au. That's L-A-G-O-S financial.com.au for a free consultation to get you on the path to financial freedom today. So we've already kind of touched on it on the opening remarks, but can you basically just explain to me in as much detail or as little detail as you want to, if there's one thing the bank wants to see, what is it for borrowing capacity? Honestly, they just want to see that there's a surplus, like their calculators and they're working out, is there a debt servicing ratio? Is it meeting that? Mm -hmm. So ultimately, if we can show a pass, like a green tick versus a red, that's what they want to see. They usually will work with us, broker, to find a solution. It's very rare that they're going to look at it and say, sorry, they can't afford it. We're just going to decline it. They're actually going to look at it and say, okay, what can we do to get the income up? An example was yesterday, I was talking to a credit assessor from one of the big banks and a customer was, they have a novated lease. So this is if you have you know, a car loan and the employer pays for some of that pre-tax. It's known as a fringe benefit. The way a bank treats that, even that is different. So this particular bank, I'm not going to say which bank it is, but this bank wanted to include all of the pre-tax deductions as a commitment. So that means they're going to deduct it from the income, even though some of that income, that deductions were going to the customer to let them spend on the mortgage, essentially tax-free income. But that's the bank's policy. They said, we have to deduct that and include that as, as the financial commitment. But the car loan was really the only financial commitment. And that was only $770 a month. That's the car loan portion, the finance lease. All the rest of it was maintenance, right? They call it a fully maintained, novated lease. So they were essentially doubling up because they're accounting for the expenses for the car in the monthly living expenses which falls under the HEM, and we'll talk about the HEM shortly. And then they're wanting to double up by deducting, I think it was about $800 a fortnight in total. 
So that meant the deal doesn't serve us anymore. But he didn't say, sorry, it doesn't serve us. The deal's declined. He said to me, I noticed that on the, the mail applicant, he's getting some allowances, which we can use for serviceability. Can you get me the next payslip, the consecutive payslip? So he's now looking for a solution with me to get more income to show that it actually services. So that's the overarching thing that a bank's always going to look for. Of course, your credit history has got to be clean. Your employment has got to be pretty consistent and all of that. But overarching, it needs to service. And if it shows a pass and we can find a way for it to pass, that deal is going to get approved. Yeah, right. That's really interesting. So what about security? Like say I have like 10 properties that are all unencumbered. And I'll get you to explain what unencumbered means for the people who are new to investing. But say I have 10 unencumbered properties and my servicing is a bit iffy. It's like I'm basically on a line. Because I can securitize and give them security over those assets, does that make any difference in my application? I'm glad you asked that question because there's a misconception out there that people think that by having more assets that they can borrow more. So there's two things that banks are going to look for when calculating your ability to borrow. One is the security, which is what we talked about. How much mm-hmm. of your assets so they can use as collateral or security. They can basically means they can sell off and gives them comfort to lend you more money. But that is not based on how much you can borrow. That's your borrowing capacity. Your borrowing capacity will only come out from income. Higher income, less expenses. That's what's going to increase your borrowing capacity. So you can literally be asset rich be full of properties, all unencumbered. And unencumbered just means that there's no mortgage, there's no encumbrances or interests on the property. So it's debt-free, essentially. Mm-hmm. You can be sitting on millions of dollars of, of assets. If you've got no one living in them, no rental income, you can be sitting on cash, right? millions of dollars in cash. A bank's not going to give you a loan for 30 years, which is a normal loan term, because you've got no income to service it. You mm-hmm. could say, hey, I've got a million dollars in cash. That million dollars is going to service my debt. But that's not how they look at it because they've got no control over that. It's not recurring income. It, every time you withdraw, the balance goes down. You can decide in a moment, I want to go gamble, I want to go buy a yacht or whatever. And it's not income generating. So now all of a sudden, you've got no income to service the loan that you're applying for. So they will always look for recurring income. And my suggestion in that scenario would be rental income. How do you increase the rental income across your portfolios to boost your borrowing capacity? That's going to help you borrow more, not the actual value of the assets itself. Yeah, that's super interesting because like you obviously hear all the time, people are asset rich and income poor. So like if you have a million dollars in the actual bank, that doesn't mean anything for your serviceability because it's not recurring income. So are you like better off putting in this some kind of fully frank shares where you know you're going to be getting some dividend back from this share every single month or quarter? And then that could be your income for servicing, even though it's the same million bucks, which that's way more risky doing it that way just to show reoccurring income. If you're putting it in some type of sort of managed fund or share portfolio where you receive dividends and that's recurring income, well, then it's actually less risky because the value shouldn't be going downwards, right? Shouldn't of course, be going. the risk is if it, does, <laughs> if it goes down, then yes, it is riskier because then the, the income drops. But the fact that it's paying that, it means it's a pretty strong share portfolio. I don't know if it's ASX top 10 or something like that, because typically companies don't pay you dividends, smaller companies, smaller businesses. And you're right. That is something that banks look at. They will actually look at dividends that you receive on your share portfolio, and they will use that income for servicing. But if it's all in cash and you're getting money from the bank in interest, 
They can even use that, by the way. But let's face it, it's not much. <laughs> yeah. They charge you a lot, but they don't give you much. In that instance, because this is actually really interesting, because I never really thought about that in my mind, where if I just had the money, I had money for the servicing, like a buffer, that that wouldn't be taken into account. Because I guess you and I are both young. We've always had reoccurring income through work. So it's never been something that I would really think about. So in that instance where someone's potentially a little bit older, they've done really well, but they don't have any reoccurring income and they've just got cash in the bank because people just do like to have cash in the bank. Like they'll, you know, have Mm. all of their wealth in a bank account for the rest of their life, especially if they've just retired or just on the verge of retirement. What's a good strategy to be able to show the bank that I've got this asset of money? Like, do they just go... Hey, Victor, I'll give you this million bucks. You just pay me every month to make it look like I've got reoccurring income and then that'll be good for serviceability. Like that almost sounds like that's what they want to see. They do want to see it, but they want to see it where there's a demonstration of some sort of history. Yeah. It's not just bank accounts and, oh, look at these deposits. They're going to say, well, where are these deposits coming from? And if it's your mate doing it, that's <laughs> not really income, right? You know, if it's a genuine investment that's paying you yeah. a return, they're going to want to see the investment summary. It's not just your bank account. So they are wanting to see income. And the, the question you're talking about, if someone at that age of retirement, well, should they be borrowing money then? That's the question. If they're at retirement, the bank's going to say, why am I lending them money if they're no longer working and they're no longer making any income? It doesn't make any sense. But they could, be trying to, they could be trying to invest to get the income mm-hmm. to give themselves more opportunity later on in life and have the income paying for themselves. Like I'm always exactly. talking about investing in commercial property and having positive income coming in. It's not, this is not a negative play. But it that's just, a good example. What you just said, commercial property. If you're saying a million dollars, buy a commercial property, you know, there's no financial advice here, but that would generate the income. Yeah. 60,000, you know, 60, 60, 60,000 net. A year, yeah. Right. Net. Yeah. And now all of a sudden you've got income that you can use to help the leverage and borrow money. Of course, if that million was everything, now you've got no security and that property has already been, or then again, you could use that property as security as well. Yeah. Keep that in mind, right? Yeah. So you can have an unencumbered property earning you the income. Now you can put that property as security and use that to borrow more money to buy something else. You buy that property with cash, then you recycle the debt out of that to buy more property and you can use the income from that property to service the debt on future property. That's definitely how it should be done. Yeah, that's good. I like that. I was literally having a conversation (laughs) with someone yesterday about this who's got the cash sitting in the account and they want to buy a PPOR, a Mm -hmm. home, non-deductible debt. It's not income generating, but he wants to buy it for their family. But he's got $700,000, him and his, and his wife. And they're going to use that as a deposit. And the LVR on the property they're buying is going to be about 60% thereabouts. So they could buy this home, borrow 60%, contribute 40%, and then go to the bank in the future, pretty soon if they want, and re-borrow the equity that they've just chipped in with their cash as a deposit and use that to buy an investment property. Now the interest that they're going to pay on that is tax deductible. So if they had done it the other way and just put the cash straight as a deposit on an investment property, yes, they would have stronger cash flow, but they wouldn't be able to claim any interest because there's no interest to claim and they wouldn't have a home either. <laughs> so so this is a, a strategy because if you think about it, if you trace the money, all they're using is their own money, right? They're just putting mm. it into a property first and then they're recycling it and taking it back out for an investment purpose. So that happens every day of the week. Just 
knowing timing and you know you got to know your personal objectives and and your yeah 100 yeah that's really interesting so with the bank this is an actual interest one i know you and i have had a few offline conversations about this because victor's doing some refinancing for me in my own personal finances so i wanted to talk about this because this is really interesting i don't think that people really understand or know about this it's about if you can demonstrate a business plan and you can forecast the cash flow from that business, will the bank lend on that particular forecast? Yeah, it's a good question because it's very specific. When you're talking about an investor, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. An investor will get rental income, but if you're an owner-occupier, so it means you're going to operate a business out of that property, then yes, you could potentially use forecasted or projected income along with a business plan. So it's definitely considered commercial lending, not residential. It falls outside of the consumer credit protection and APRA regulations because they'll only look at historical income and net profit. But if you're looking at commercial lending and your business, then yeah, definitely a bank can look at forecasted revenue and income and profit to help you borrow to even acquire a business in the first place. But you still need security. That's something you got to keep in mind because a lot of people have that idea. And they're like, I want to buy an established business, improve it and earn more money from it and then borrow money to buy that business from that future income I'm going to create. But if you don't have property, there's no skin in the game. So it's very risky for the bank. It's considered unsecured lending. I have done one before, but it was very niche and it was the bank required at least a 50% deposit. So they were willing to fund the other half. So it was a 600 grand purchase price of a business. They looked at the income and then they also looked at the forecasted income, forecasted profit and a business plan that this new owner was going to turn it into. But then because they didn't have any property to put a security, they wanted at least 50% down. So that's 600,000. They borrowed 300 and they contributed 300. You can do them that way. But if you've got property that's got a lot of equity, that's really a good opportunity for you to do something like that. Because then you can use that property as a security and use a future income and do a startup business, basically. So say I have a business venture or I have a business idea and obviously I can demonstrate that either I have knowledge in that industry or I have some experience in that industry. Is it usual or like common practice for certain banks to lend on that forecasted business plan for you and you don't have any property, maybe they can securitize the lease, like if you have a 10-year lease or something on it like that. Is that common practice to happen? No, they're going to want to take some security over it. So it depends on the, the amount you're after as well. So banks are willing to do some unsecured lending. There's mm-hmm. no problem with that. They're, they're willing to. But if you're buying a business or you need to borrow enough to cover all the costs to set that business up and you've got no property, just the forecast and alone in a business plan is not going to get you the whole amount. There's not enough in that. There's still too much risk. Experience in industry definitely adds to that, but they want some collateral. And if you've got chattels or some sort of assets like vehicles, machinery, something like that, they'll look at that as security. That helps them too. Even yeah, though it's, right. not, it's a depreciating asset, that helps them. But if it's if it's literally nothing, all digital assets, the only security they get, a security, a GSA, which is a general security agreement over the actual trading business itself for future income that it can generate. But that doesn't really mean anything because if it doesn't make any money, they get nothing. So there's nothing that they can immediately sell. No stock, there's nothing they have control over to sell 
to pay back the bad debt if you don't make your repayments. That's what they look for. So good example was myself. A few years ago, I set up a business, mortgage broking business. It didn't go well, failed actually, the first one, my first attempt. But I had a property and one of the banks was able to refinance my existing residential loan and work off forecasted income to service the loan. And they gave me a startup overdraft of like 60 grand and a business credit card. Well, I had industry experience, but I didn't have business experience. (laughs) So I made some mistakes and I ended up using all that money and not getting a return on it immediately. So I ended up making my own decision to sell that property to clear the debt. They didn't enforce that, but they could have. If I let the loan go into arrears and get into bad debt, they could have sold my property and cleared it. And then I would have got whatever was left after legal costs and I would have had bad credit. It can be a risky game. That was a perfect example. They took their risk, but they had the property. So they'll happily give me the money. I took the risk, didn't have the experience, but I made that decision that it's time to get out and clear the debt. So people out there, they want to do some risky stuff too. If they've got no property or no big cash to chip in, don't expect that a bank's going to lend you all the money. It just doesn't happen. This day. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Now, I bet just from that failed venture or that first try, you probably learned so many lessons. So you basically paid for your education into how to how things are run and how things should and the processes and things like that. And that's why you've got a flourishing mortgage broking business now from that first mistake because you learn so much from your mistakes. Like if you had had success straight away, success isn't a great teacher. Failure is the true, mm. the great teacher. Yeah, yeah. And, and the word failure, the truth is you don't really truly fail unless you give up. Unless you quit, yeah. So, unless you're fully out of the game. But if you're um, in the lesson, like if you're going through the experience and you learn through those experiences, you keep going. And that's what happened with me. So you're right. I'm in a much different position now. And it was just an expensive lesson. Yeah. yeah, That's it. I've had a few expensive lessons myself. So mate, another one I wanted to actually talk about, which is something that you and I have also spoken about, is how you have to have your accountant on board with your property plan. And this has bit me in the ass just recently. And I wanted to basically let you talk about how the accountant really needs to be working with you on your team and potentially even be connected with the mortgage broker on your team to make sure the goals are aligned. Yeah, it's super important because an accountant, some of them are not really property focused. Some of them don't own property, they don't understand property, and they don't try to help customers build a property portfolio. Some of them do. Some of them understand the limitations of borrowing capacity. They understand that you're going to need to be sometimes creative to have a balance of tax reduction as well as borrowing capacity improvement. So working with the right accountant gets that. It's going to help you along the way, along the journey. And it's going to be times where you need them to write up letters and declarations for you when you hit your ceilings of borrowing capacity and then you end up going to a non-bank, do like an alt doc or a low doc loan. So having the right accountant is super important to have on your team. And sometimes you have to let go of the old accountant, the old family accountant or the old H&R block around the corner to upgrade your team. So just explain to me how an accountant can screw up your borrowing capacity. They can bring down your taxable income so low that there's nothing left to help you borrow. So in their mind, they're like, I want to get you to pay less tax. And that's great. But then when you want to go borrow to buy a property, there's no income left to borrow. So that's how they can screw you. They think they're helping you, but they're actually hindering your financial journey. 
Yeah, 100%. And I've actually seen this a couple of times with profit and losses on self-storage facilities where the operator, obviously the accountant is working to minimize their tax. Like it's clearly obvious because you can see that the facility itself has definitely a higher income, but there are all like all these crazy things that he's being charged, he's taxing and deducting and things like that. So it makes it look like at the end of the day, He's earning such a small amount that it doesn't stack up when you're trying to, to sell this property. So like if you're owning a property or an asset, like a self-storage facility that you want to sell, you have to prepare that like a year before, before you want to sell it because you've got profit and losses that are getting generated by your accountant. It's a different focus between them trying to save you money in taxes to showing like income from that property to get you the highest price for that sale. So it's really important to talk to these accountants and make sure that the objectives are the same or they're in line with your goals. Yeah, exactly right. And everyone knows someone in business. It's always good to ask them who they use and why they work with their accountant. That's how you just get the introduction and upgrade, have the right conversations because that's what's going to help you get to the next stage, whether it is for business or whether it's for property. Yeah, 100%. If you have ever tried to run numbers in your cash flow calculator, you'll know how important it is to have the right inputs. Stamp duty alone can vary wildly depending on what state you are buying in. That's why you need to know the exact figure. Lagos Financial have a full suite of calculators ready for you to start crunching your numbers today. Go check out your borrowing power, budgeting, income tax, refinance calculators, repayment calculators, or my personal favorite, the stamp duty calculator, just to name a few. Go to lagosfinancial.com.au. That's L-A-G-O-S financial.com.au to start using these calculators today. So, mate, can you just share a few actionable tips that maybe the listeners can take away and use to potentially like increase their borrowing capacity somewhat quickly? Some of the immediate things they can do is actually to reduce their personal debts. So if they can close their credit cards, if they can consolidate loans such as car loans or hex debt, that's going to actually improve that straight away. If they own property, if they can increase the rent, they're outside of the lease, they can increase the rent, go ahead and do that. It's going to improve your income. If you've got existing loans that have got short terms, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, refinance them and reset the terms to 30 years. Having a longer term means, yes, you're going to pay more interest, but you're increasing your borrowing capacity by doing that. And then the other thing you can do is with your expenses is review them and talk to your mortgage broker who can tell you what the HEM is, H-E-M, for your household and bring your expenses in line with him. So that way you're below that or in line with it. So that way you're not above it. That will increase your borrowing capacity. And there's other things you can do, which look, I don't suggest to anyone to underinsure yourself. It's important to have the right insurances, but just so you're aware, life insurance and health insurance, income protection, all of that falls outside of him. So if you're paying for all these insurances, it's actually impacting your borrowing capacity. And also, private school fees. So if you're paying for private school, well, I don't want to tell you what to do and take your kids out of private, put them into public, but that can actually impact your borrowing quite a bit. So those are things that you can do immediately that will boost your borrowing capacity. And then 
Obviously, the most important one is get a pay rise. <laughs> so if you can either ask your boss for a pay increase or a bonus, that's going to help you. And then if you're self-employed, work with your accountant, that can actually help you to show a bit more profit, you know, that you can use for help you borrow more. Yeah, that's interesting because on the term sheets or the in your portal that I filled out and you gave me the output back and I'm doing some borrowing, obviously, with my fiancés involved as well. And she's got a $25,000 hex debt. Hex debt? What the hell is this? This isn't mine. So, you know, so now I've got a $25,000 hex debt that's apparently like lumped with my my borrowing. So I've got to, we've got to take care of that. That's to get yeah, that you're in the same off. household, right? Yeah, this is, I didn't sign up for that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you live and learn, right? Yeah, that's it. You know, you so when you're, when you're also married, they're fine. Yeah. Too. So when you're finding a partner, make sure you've got to ask them about their hex debt. What hex debt do they have? Is it uh, good or bad or ugly? Mate, what about like mistakes? I'm sure you see a lot of mistakes that people make with putting in their applications or like mistakes with their finance. What are the really big ones that you've seen that maybe the listeners can avoid to help them not make that mistake and increase their borrowing capacity? There's definitely a lot of mistakes that people can make. I think talking to a broker is the number one thing that you can do rather than going to the bank. And I think that's a mistake mistake going to the bank. (laughs) Well, it's a mistake to go to the bank directly at times because what you say can't be unsaid. Whereas talking to a broker will understand your situation and help you navigate it in a way that's going to allow you to achieve your objectives. So it's typically somewhat confidential what you talk about because at the end of the day, you're trying to figure out a solution for each other. So that would be, I think, a common mistake is providing way too much information up front directly to the bank. Talk to your broker first to get a more broader picture as to what's possible for your circumstances. Another mistake would be debts. So a lot of people don't talk about the fact that they had, you know, you talk about hex, but you might have had some missed payments in the past or an old default that you had on your credit file. And you, you know, in the back of your mind, that it could still be there, but you try to hide it or ignore it, thinking that no one's going to find out about it. And then you apply for the loan and everyone spends time getting it all together. And then you find out later, the bank finds out because they do their checks. The mortgage broker finds out, but you knew deep down. So that's a mistake. I think you need to be transparent with your credit history and look for remedies around. There are ways to clear. Everyone makes mistakes. Like no one's got perfect squeaky clean credit history. Well, some people do, but for the most part, there's people out there that have made some mistakes and there's, there's ways to remedy it to still help you borrow. I'd say those are probably the biggest ones, borrowing capacity-wise. Oh, actually, no, there is another big one <laughs> that just occurred to me. When you go and start your own business or you become a contractor, a lot of people want to go out and invoice because they're going to get paid more. Mm-hmm. But they go do that and then they go apply for a loan. They need two years of trading history. So you want to get the loan while you're still PAYG. Once you've got the loan, you can make decisions for your household. So that would be a common mistake that a lot of people do. So the mistake is quitting your job first and you're doing your new venture and then trying to get the loan after you've quit your PAYG job. Yeah, that is yeah get mistake. the loan first while you've still got the recurring income. If you plan on starting a business, obviously you want to make sure that it's the right move for you. But even if it is secure... Well, the bank's not going to lend you money unless you've got two years of history to prove that. So keep that in mind before you quit your job. Yeah, that's if you a need good finance one. anytime yeah, soon. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, because when you first started answering that question, I said, what are the mistakes? And you said talking to a mortgage broker. And I'm like, I thought you were leading into that's a mistake. I'm like, that's not a mistake. <laughs> that's why I cut you. Cut you. 
So, yeah. no, that, no, that's not a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> so, mate, awesome. in terms of like trusts, I've heard a lot about like how you can use trusts and other entities to increase your borrowing capacity. And I think this is a really interesting one because this is actually like really workable. It could definitely change the game for a lot of people. So how can you use trusts or entities to dramatically change your borrowing capacity? Yeah, a lot of people think that by having a trust that you can increase your borrowing. It's not necessary that it increases it. It can help you to not limit your borrowing. And what I mean by that is by setting up a new entity, you're the guarantor, you and your partner for example. So serviceability is based on your income and your expenses Mm -hmm. and the rental income that property that the entity is buying is going to generate. But it's called a special purpose vehicle. So it's not a trading business. It is set up specifically to own the property. So the income is still going to be based on you guys, you as a guarantors. Where it can not hinder you in the future is that because it's a commercial debt and not residential and it's under a commercial entity, then it can be excluded from your personal borrowing capacity as long as your accountant is willing to write a letter to say that it's profitable and able to meet its financial commitments. If they write that, they're not going to stress test that commercial mortgage. So you could have a million dollar mortgage and we talked about earlier about they're going to stress test it at 3% above the interest rate. If it's 7% commercial rate, you're going to stress test it at 10%. That could kill the deal. But if the rent is covering the mortgage and the expenses, we can exclude it altogether with an account letter. But if it's your name and you're buying it in your name, you can't get an account letter for that. It will show up on your credit file and you must declare it and the bank's going to stress test it for what it is. So that's why having a, a commercial trust specifically, so keep that in mind, has to be a corporate trustee of the trust, not the yep. individual trustee, and then it can be excluded. So that's where it can help you. So similar to a self-managed super fund, that doesn't impact your personal borrowing capacity because it is a separate entity outside of your personal and it's excluded when calculating borrowing capacity. So that's really powerful. And then in the future, where it can help you borrow is when it becomes super profitable. So say you've got a new entity and say two, three years later, it's actually generating 50 grand profit every year. Well, that profit can now then be added to your income to help you borrow without stress testing the mortgage that you got on. So net profit can be added to your income and help you borrow. So yeah, it can be a really powerful tool when you do it properly. That's really cool. So it's basically like you're sheltering that debt. So you're basically sheltering that debt from going onto your personal name or your personal borrowing capacity because it's its own standalone entity. And I guess that is essentially why you have a trust or you why you have a business entity because you don't want to be using your personal name and your personal assets so it won't be liable. So you basically can set up trust after trust after trust and shelter the debt And then potentially you could not, when you're assessing borrowing or capacity from the bank, if you're doing that in your personal name or a new entity, then that doesn't take into account those original loans. Is that right? Yeah, as long as the accountant allows you to exclude it. So if not, the bank's going to ask for financials and they're going to include the debt. So if it's running at a loss and they see that, they will put the loss against your name. It will impact your borrowing. That's why having a good accountant is super important. They know the journey that you're on and they're willing to write letters for you to help you. But if you need that income to help you service, like if you say, oh, I get all this commercial rental income, I want to use that to help me borrow. Well, then you're going to have to disclose the debt as well. It's only later when it's showing a strong profit. If it's a very little amount of profit in the beginning, you're better off excluding it altogether. 
But if it's running at a significant loss, well, your accountant is most likely not going to write a letter for you to say it's profitable. But say it was and the accountant was able to write that, it can be excluded and you can keep growing your personal borrowing and buy your, your PPOR without that affecting your borrowing. Yeah, wow. So is it just accountant to accountant, you ask that letter and then they provide it to the mortgage broker? Is that how it works? Yeah. Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, the customer has to ask for it and then the accountant will write it and then it's sent to the bank. The bank will just happily exclude because the bank will always do a credit check and any directorships you have will show up on your credit file. So they're going to want a letter for any directorship. They're not going to do credit checks against every single company that you have because you're not borrowing in that company. You're applying under your name for this particular loan in the future. So they don't have the right to just do credit checks on all these other companies. So that's why they need an accountant letter or financials, tax returns, one or the other. If the tax returns show profit, you don't need the account to write anything. But just be mindful that the bank may then stress test the mortgages that exist. So that might not help you. So it's better to exclude it altogether. Yeah, cool. And I like the fact that you can exclude it and then later on when you want to borrow, you can use the income to help you. That's cool. So like you get the best of both worlds there. Exactly. Yeah. It's just timeline, right? In the beginning, exclude it. When it earns more and more, then you use it. Yeah, nice. All right, mate. Last question. You have obviously a large view on all these different banks. Which ones right now particularly are you liking that you're able to squeeze the most out of like borrowing capacity for people? Are there specific ones that you like that you favor or have better lending terms right now that you like? Actually, I touched on it earlier. We talked about non-banks. So the yeah. non-banks that are more generous with their borrowing capacity are Pepper Money, are Liberty Financial, our First Mac. They're kind of the well-known ones. But there are a couple of others out there that I'm sort of starting to connect with and learning more about their policies. So I'm not going to tell you who they are yet just because I don't know them well enough. So of course, that's what I'm here to do. So if customers do want to reach out to me, I can always um, look at their circumstances and then connect with these new lenders and see if if they're willing to help. Because remember, these lenders will give you more, but they're going to charge you more. So just be prepared for that. Higher fees and higher interest rates, but they'll lend you more money. So yeah, but it's all about getting the deal done, isn't it? So if you can just get the deal done, you know, even if you can paying a little bit higher interest rate, your wealth can grow a lot from getting that deal done rather than just like trying to find the best interest rate possible because at the end of the day, that little gap between the interest rate doesn't make you wealthy, but buying the property and potentially having a cash flow and then the capital growth of that behind it does. So definitely worth shopping around. All right, mate, that pretty much wraps up the episode three, Cracking the Lending Code. So where can listeners go to find out more about you and your services, mate? You can find me on my website, which is lagosfinancial.com.au. They can hit contact us and they can do an inquiry or they can book in a call directly in my calendar and we will reach out. We'll set up a time. Well, that could be our time setting up and we'll go through your circumstances and uh, see what we can do. Fantastic, mate. All right. This has been financial expert Victor Lagos and Andrew Bean on the Financial Freedom Series. Cheers, everyone. See everyone. Cheers. (laughs) 